Last week we started a series on what the Bible calls the wisdom literature. It's five books in the Bible that uh, we are going to be going through in this next season. Uh, we're not doing that this week. <laughs> uh, we have, uh, uh, Dr. Miller came up, we're friends, he came up for a vacation, and I say, hey, would it be okay, you know, if you come and speak to us this Sunday, is that going to wreck your vacation? So he was kind of enough to say no. It's not going to wreck his vacation. Not no, he's not going to do it. Um, and so uh, uh, he's been here before, and you know him, but can you, can you come up, and I just want to, I'm going to make you introduce yourself, because uh, I don't understand you, <clears throat> and I'm going to say it all wrong. If, uh, so, so where did you go to school, Brian? <laughs> Hi. I went to school at MIT for my undergraduate and Duke University for my PhD work. So you really overcame your learning disabilities. That's right. Well done. Yeah. Um, so, so, and uh, what do you do now? I'm a vagrant. I have a sign that says, we'll do preaching for food. So he was kind <laughs> enough to, no, no. I, I work for Discovery Institute, which is a science think tank. So we talk about and research how does science point to a designer, essentially. So I'm a, a, my PhD is in complex systems physics, so I specialize in origin of life, um, the expansion of our universe, and different things like that. Cool. And well, maybe you said what you specialize in, but so you're not going to say this, but I get to ask you, so then you have to answer. Uh, what do you, uh, in terms of your research, what are you kind of a, uh, a world authority on? Can you say that? Oh, okay. It's it's hard to say it, uh, but. I am a world authority on the origin of life and thermodynamics and why the origin of life requires a designer. Isn't that cool? So, uh, so we're going to be able to hear him talk, and I'm going to pray for you. And if you don't understand what he says, you just smile and go. <laughs> and then everybody will think that you're following along. Father, I thank you so much for my friend. I thank you uh, not just for what you've done in his mind, but for what you've done in his heart. And this is a man who loves you, who trusts you, and who walks in humility. And I pray that you would, uh, that you would bless him with freedom to speak, and that you would help us today be able to worship you more clearly because of what Dr. Miller says. Meet us in this time, in Jesus' name, amen. Um, uh, thank you. It's, it's always such a pleasure to be here. I, um, I have a very special relationship with the churches in Canada, with every nation, I think I was a Canadian separated at birth. I just feel like I'm home when I come up here, so it's something I'm working through in the United States. But um, it's really amazing coming up because uh, Greg took me uh, on some of the beautiful hikes that you have, and I realized uh, that I, coming to the, the our Northwest, your, your Southwest, that I have a chance to finally get back in shape. I go through periods. I don't even have those, chance, those, those moments where you're really good about going to the gym and exercising, and those times where you're not. And I'm in one of those knots. So going hiking, I realized that this is going to be a challenge. And um, Greg was talking about this thing called, was it the grind? Yeah, the grind. And I'm thinking, do you have anything called like Couch Potato Ridge or, um, or Girly Man uh, Ravine? Or, uh, so I think that might be a little more appropriate. Uh, but, but I survived, so that's great. And uh, it, it's really interesting because we had a seminar where we had people around the world come to learn about the evidence for design in nature. 
So they had 60 hours of training on this. So I have all this stuff that's kind of flowing through me. You ever have like something you're so excited about that you just have to tell someone? So then some help, hapless victim comes by and you just kind of, you're my hapless victim today, just so you know. So this is gonna be a lot of science. So if you don't like science and you escape out the back, I will not be offended, so just so you know. But um, I'm gonna talk a little bit about just the evidence for a creator in nature. And before I do that, I have to say it's really an honor to be here because Greg and, and, and Debbie are two of my heroes in the faith. Uh, just the way they've sacrificed themselves and, and served others, served their family. And I, I think it's interesting because people come to churches for different reasons. They've got cool uh, worship, and you do have cool worship, and that, that's great. And you've got um, lots of activities, a good youth ministry. But really what makes a difference is the people behind the scenes that are fighting for you. The people that are there to be with you when you go through the trials. The people there that are inspiring you to uh, reach new heights. And they really are my heroes in the way he, they fought for you, they fought for their family. So be encouraged. You're in a very good place here. Uh, and I think what happens is it'll be very much science, but the issue of design goes way beyond just the issue of science because I think what happens is you face different narratives in your life. One narrative is sort of the narrative you watch on TV, the narrative you see in the movies, that life is about being happy and self-fulfilled. It's about having the nice house with the picket fence. It's about uh, entertaining yourself. And, and that's kind of like the matrix. You're trapped in this false narrative. And the true narrative is you're about living for a greater kingdom, living for a greater purpose. And the thing is, you have to realize, if you don't know who's designed you, if you don't know the purpose he's designed you for, then your life will have no meaning. It'll just be an exercise in futility. So this is something beyond the science, is to recognize that once you know who's designed you, who loves you, who has a purpose for you, it redefines everything. This is why this is so significant. And today, uh, we're gonna talk about what's called the heavens declare, and it's gonna be based on Romans 1. And just to give you a little of my background, is I was raised in the church, but what happened was I went to MIT and I read a book by a man named Richard Dawkins. Now, who here has heard of Richard Dawkins? Okay, for those of you who have not heard of him, he is one of the patron saints of atheism. His goal is to eradicate religion from the planet. And he wrote a book back in the day called um, The Blind Watchmaker. And this is a modern version called The God Delusion. I think the title kind of says it all, right? And he argues that when you look at nature, you think you see design, but it's all an illusion. In fact, nature is simply the blind forces of nature, and we're simply an accident of those blind forces. There is no creator, there's no designer. We're simply a product of matter and energy. And what happened is there was another atheist named Lawrence Krauss, who's a, he works, he's a cosmologist, and that, that doesn't mean he works on people's hair, it means he, he studies the expansion of the universe, just to clarify that. And I um, want to, you know, make sure. And he, he made this great quote. He says, we constitute a 1% bit of pollution in the universe. We are completely irrelevant. And this is his picture of reality. And he's an atheist. And it's really interesting because in the United States, we've got lots of scandals taking place. You may have heard of Harvey Weinstein and people like that. And it's people that, that really treat women particularly as objects, um, as something to use. And what happens, I think what people don't realize, is that's not something that's surprising when you have the wrong story for your life. Because if you believe that, you're, that other people are a 1% bit of pollution in the universe, it's not surprising that, that these things happened. So it's really significant. And I realized, um, reading this, that if this is the case, if I'm simply a product of nature, 
life is kind of pointless because it doesn't matter if I'm happy or if I'm sad, if, our, if I'm kind or cruel, or if I try to help the poor, if I try to oppress the poor. It makes no difference because we're all going to die. We'll fertilize daffodils and that'll be it. Eventually the universe explodes, the, or the planet will explode and, and it's all over. The pretty dark thoughts as a freshman in college, but that's where I was. Well, I remember, and I said, God, I don't really know if you exist, but if you do exist, you have to prove it to me because I'm a scientist. There's lots of people that have emotional experiences in church. That's not me. If it's true, I want to see the evidence, just the facts. And I said, God, I don't care what's really true, but if this is true and you prove it to me, I will serve you with all of my heart. And that put me on a multi-year journey where I went through history and philosophy and, and cosmology and biology and all sorts of disciplines. And what happened is through that journey, I really uh, recognized that the evidence for a creator is absolutely overwhelming. The evidence for the resurrection of Jesus is absolutely overwhelming. The resurrection is one of the most well-verified facts of history. I'll talk about that hopefully next time I come back. Uh, and I also realized that God is real because it was through my intellectual journey and through encountering God personally that I came back to faith. And it's been a privilege to try to point out the evidence for a creator because it's really challenging. Have you watched The Truman Show? Yeah. Okay, great movie. What happened was you have uh, Jim Carrey who's, uh, he's on a reality TV show and he's a star, but he doesn't know it. And what happens is everyone around him are actors, but he thinks his life is real. And what happens is people try to come into Truman and tell him the truth, like they parachute in with a sign that says, Truman, you're on a TV show. But every time someone tries to tell him the truth, their forces and powers that try to discredit them. People will be kind of yanked on buses, or there'll be uh, announcers on the radio saying, hey, don't listen to these people, they're crazy. That's what we face. We're part of the Truman Show. Because the evidence for God and science is very, very, very clear and unambiguous, but there are forces and powers that present lies and deception that try to hide the truth from people. And that's the challenge we face. So I'm going to talk about what is the evidence and how do we see what is actually true. And I, <laughs> I, 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 there's always a temptation to give you too much science and to give too many details. And I gave into that temptation, I'm sorry. But nevertheless, I'll, try, I'll make it clear to you what you need to remember, okay? So all of you, you English majors, you're going to be okay, don't panic. <laughs> now, what's also important to realize is this debate is not new. People think this debate between science and faith, a designer versus blind chance, goes back to maybe the Scopes trial in Dayton, Tennessee, or perhaps back to Charles Darwin. But this debate goes back to ancient Greece, because you have people like Aristotle, um, who was arguing that there is design, there's purpose in the universe, what he called teleology. That's a really cool word. Remember that teleology, you can impress people. And we talked about teleology in our sermon. Awesome. And that just means purpose. It's good to know what the word means if you throw it out there. Just <laughs> point of advice. Um, and also, there was another philosopher named Democritus. And he was a materialist. Now, when I use the word materialism, I don't mean that he likes to shop at Macy's and have lots of bling. I mean he believes all that exists is matter and energy. That's it. Matter, energy, time, and space is all that exists, and we're simply the product of the blind chances of nature. So the debate between design and chance goes back to the ancient Greeks. In fact, um, centuries later, if you look at the Apostle Paul, when he's talking to the church in Rome, he's talking about there being a designer in nature, and he's speaking into a cultural context. In his context, there is also the same debate. Like the Epicureans, 
those weren't the people that would be on Iron Chef. The Epicureans were philosophers that believed the, what the atomists said. I'm glad some of you are catching. That's good. It's encouraging. <laughs> that, that, that affirms me. I appreciate that. Um, so the Epicureans argued that the atomists were essentially correct. That the, if, the, if the gods existed, they're outside of nature, and you have these eternal atoms that exist that bounce off each other, and everything is essentially a product of chance and time. In fact, they reasoned, there was even a poet called Lucretius, and he argued for a Darwinian-type evolutionary process that produced the different life forms we have today. So it was much more primitive, it wasn't scientific, but this debate goes back to the ancient Greeks, because whenever a culture denies a creator, they always look to chance and time to explain the design they see in nature. Nothing new under the sun. So Paul was dealing with this, and he was confronting the Epicureans when he wrote Romans and the various philosophers, and he said, the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so people are without excuse. It's always fun to, to start a sermon talking about the wrath of God. That always sets a nice, pleasant, relaxing tone to a sermon. And just so you know, Paul was not going on some tirade what he was doing, he was setting up his audience. Because in the Roman church, a big challenge was people were saying, to be Christian, you have to embrace Torah. You have to embrace the Jewish law. And that was a problem, because if Gentiles embraced the Jewish law, they couldn't have dinner with their relatives, and that would create cultural isolation, which would definitely hold back evangelism. So what Paul is doing in Romans is he's going back between the, Rome, between the Greeks and the Jewish people and kind of ping-ponging back and forth. So what he's saying is the Gentiles, the non-Jews, the pagans, essentially were doing things, alienating them from God, but then he would say, ah, but you Jews are no better because you haven't believed the Torah either. So that's what he's doing. He's kind of setting people up. So that's kind of an interesting context. But nevertheless, the point is, what Paul is saying is it is obvious in nature that there is a designer, but people suppress the truth. And that suppression has become much more sophisticated as time goes on. Now, it's interesting because if you actually look at today's discussion, there's often a sense that there is a conflict between faith and science. Who's been taught that before? Yeah, there's a conflict between faith and science. You have sort of the rational scientists who are trying to know the truth, and the religious superstitious people are trying to suppress the truth. That is a myth. If you look at the early founders of modern science, people like, and I say modern as in after the Greeks, you get the idea. Um, so people like Isaac Newton, Boyle, Kepler, uh, all these people were Christians because it was their faith that allowed them to do science. Because if you don't believe in a creator, if you think you're just simply a product of time and chance, why should your brain have evolved to understand things like quantum mechanics? which determines what happens around atoms, or general relativity, which describes how the universe, well, at least a physicist understand them. Um, how can we understand science if God didn't give us the ability to understand it, and if God didn't create the world in an orderly way that could be discovered? So the early scientists were Christians because their faith allowed them to do science. 
Certainly you can be an atheist and do science, but you have to steal Christian assumptions. That's kind of an encouragement. Einstein, beautiful quote. Einstein said the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it is comprehensible. That is deeply profound. But again, what's also amazing, and I've talked about this before, but it'll be kind of like watching the Lord of the Rings over. You want to see the scenes again, you know, the, the bell rock and all that. So I'll give a little bit of a repeat and then give some new stuff. For those of you that memorized my last sermon. <clears throat> so, uh, who has heard of the Big Bang Theory? Again, not the TV show with Penny and Sheldon. The idea of the universe expanding. Yes, and this was really shocking because what people realized is that the universe had a beginning. Time, space, matter, and energy all began in an explosion of light. Does that ring a bell? Kind of sounds like Genesis 1, right? So you look at science now knows that Genesis was accurate. And that's definitely very different from what the scientists believed before then. So you see the picture of a creator in modern science. But even beyond that, when people looked at the laws of physics, they realized that the laws of physics were designed for the purpose of allowing for life. If gravity were slightly stronger or weaker, there wouldn't be planets. If the force that holds electrons, the protons, were slightly stronger or weaker, there wouldn't be chemistry. In fact, there is an atheist named Fred Hoyle, and he uh, didn't really believe in a creator, but he, re he recognized something very peculiar. And that is, if you want to have a universe that has carbon, and carbon is essential for life, you have to have a lot of the energy levels in carbon set perfectly. You have to have a lot of details in oxygen set perfectly. And there's several other cosmic coincidences that have to be just right, or else stars would not have produced carbon and oxygen in large amounts, which is necessary for life. Now, I won't go into the quantum mechanics, however tempting that might be. You'll have to trust me on this. But what happened is he made this amazing quote. He says, a common sense interpretation of the data suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics as well as with chemistry and biology. He said his atheism was greatly disturbed by these results, that nature was designed with life in mind. It was not chance. That's extremely encouraging. Now, what happens is it's not just with the laws of physics, but if you look at our planet, Earth, what happens is to have life, there are numerous details that have to be perfect. The distance from the sun, the tilt, the rotation rate, the, the moon has to stabilize our orbit, we have to have plate tectonics, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And if all these details weren't just right, there wouldn't be life on Earth. But it goes way beyond that. It's not just that we have life, but we have abundance of life from the poles to the equator that were so incredibly optimized for life, that could not be true without incredibly precision in how everything was built. But beyond that, our planet was actually designed for scientific investigation, because the same atmosphere that allows us to breathe is transparent so that we can see the stars and do astronomy. That's not true in a lot of planets. And one of my favorite examples is fire, because if the oxygen in, on our planet was slightly more, all the trees would burn down, kind of like in, in California these days. If the oxygen was not enough, you wouldn't have fire. Fire is what's essential for technology. So our planet is designed not just to live on it, but to have technological, scientific, and cultural advancement. And again, that's only true for humans, so it's designed specifically for us.
which is encouraging. But now, one of the areas where people think uh, faith and science is most in conflict is in the issue of biology. People think we've proven that life is a product of the blind forces of nature, cells just came up by chance, we just evolved by chance, and eventually we became humans through a process of biological self-actualization. That's the picture. Now the question is, is that true? And what's interesting is when you look at the origin of life in particular, it's very clear that that is complete deception. And a lot of it is self-deception. Now let's talk about why. Well, first of all, there's lots of theories about how life came about. You have lots of scenarios of comets and meteorites and chemicals coming together, and one day, a cell formed. Now, what happens is there are several issues with this. First of all, who's heard of the Stanley Miller experiment where you have gases and methane and ammonia produce amino acids? How many of you knew that, that experiment has been pretty much discredited? Because if you look at the way this experiment was done, the idea of the prebiotic soup, it was done with gases which were not the gases on the early Earth. So when the gases were replaced with the actual gases on the early Earth, there was nothing of significance. Maybe one amino acid, and that's about it. So what happened is when people did new experiments to try to build the building blocks of life, they had to create incredibly sophisticated protocols of over 100 steps, many of which required an organic chemist. And this incredibly high-level orchestration was necessary to produce things like nucleotides, which is what DNA and RNA is made from. Sorry if you haven't taken biology. This may be a little painful, but just hold on. We'll get past it soon enough. Now, what's interesting is there was um, there's a, uh, an organic chemist named James Torr. He's one of the top organic chemists in the entire world. He looked at all this origin of life research and said it's a bunch of bunk that what has happened is these experimenters use so much manipulation in their experiments that what they get in their experiments would never happen on the early Earth. So most of what you read in your textbooks about the origin of life has been pretty well discredited. It's not a desire to present true science, but it's more of a way to catechize people into a secular view of reality. It's more religious, religious training to see the world from the perspective that there's no creator. Now, the people that write these textbooks aren't trying to be deceptive. They've simply embraced a sort of atheistic, agnostic view of the world, and they're simply passing their faith tradition on to the next generation. That's the picture. But it's all mythology. In fact, here's a great uh, comment by a man named Robert Shapiro. He was one of the most uh, well-renowned uh, chemists who studied the origin of life, and he says, the analogy that comes to mind is that of a golfer who, having played golf, a golf ball through an 18-hole course, then assumed the ball could also play itself around the course in its absence. He had demonstrated the possibility of the event. It was only necessary to presume that some combination of natural forces, earthquakes, winds, tornadoes, and floods, for example, could produce the same results given enough time. That's what's happening. It's self-deception. It's, uh, it's, it's really, as Paul said, people suppress reality. Now, um, what's interesting is there was a famous physicist named Fred Hoyle, who I mentioned. He said the chance of life forming by chance is like 1 in 10 to the power of 40,000. That's like a 1 with 40,000 zeros. And he, and he compared that to a tornado going through a junkyard, throwing a bunch of rubbish up in the air, and a 747 airplane lands ready to fly. So that's what he said, and he's an atheist, he was. Well, he's deceased, he's no longer an atheist now, but he was at the time. 
Now, what's happened is many people have argued, okay, maybe life is really improbable. It's kind of like rolling dice, right? Now, if you roll a die a thousand times, is there any chance that you're going to get a thousand sixes in a row? There is one way. What's the one way it could happen? If the die is loaded, right? So a lot of scientists say, well, yes, maybe it's really improbable, but maybe nature is biased to produce life. Maybe the die is loaded, right? That turns out not to be the case. Because what happens is nature has two driving tendencies. One is to go from order to disorder. Now, how many of you have trouble keeping your room, your room messy? You really want it to be messy, so you kind of throw things around, but you come back and it's always neat. And, any of you have that problem? No, because nature wants to go from order to disorder. The second tendency is nature wants to go from high energy to low energy. Water runs downhill. Water doesn't run uphill, right? And the energy is, what, is how much the dice are loaded. As it turns out, if you look at the origin of life, life is both low entropy, it's highly ordered, it's highly improbable, that's like 1 in 10 to the 40,000, but it also is very high energy. So the origin of life is like rolling a die a thousand times, but the die is biased against rolling even one six. Like one in a billion times it gets a six, and then you still get a thousand sixes in a row. That's what the origin of life is like. In fact, there was a, there was a, a physicist named Dr. Harold Morowitz. He oh, by the way, don't freak out because of the math. I heard math causes like psychic trauma. So um, <laughs> don't panic, it's gonna be okay. But at any rate, he calculated that the, the chances of life forming, considering the energy also, is like one in 10 to a billion. That's not like a tornado going through a junkyard. That's like a super hurricane going across your western seaboard, creating 100 different airports with 100 different airplanes in an entirely new airline industry. That's the chances of life forming. Now, what's happened is most physicists know this is a problem. So what they've said is, OK, maybe if you just add lots of energy, you know, you just pump this puppy full of energy, you can create a cell. That'll help, right? Well, here's an analogy. And if you go to a library when it's sort of being set up, and imagine in this library, you have a lot of different books, and a lot are on the floor, some are on the bookshelves. Now, energy is what shelf the books are in. Top shelf, high energy, floor, low energy. Order, or entropy, is like if the books are kind of scattered on the floor, that's high entropy, or if they're in nice, neat rows in alphabetic order, that's low entropy. Okay, that makes sense? Low energy, floor, high energy, top shelf. Entropy, scattered books, low entropy, in order. Well, what happens is life is kind of like a bunch of books on the top shelf in alphabetical order. Now, if you shove this thing full of energy, if there's an earthquake, what's more likely to happen? Well, the earthquake tend to take books on the floor, pop them up to the top shelf, and put them in alphabetical order? Or an earthquake more likely put everything on the floor? That's the problem. So the issue is if you shove it full of energy, life gets really messed up. That's key. So let me just kind of, I'm going to flip through a few slides. Um, so the question becomes then, how do you get a cell? How does that work? And I want to explain to you an analogy of why this is so challenging. Now, if you talk to an origin of life researcher, they'll often say, if you have energy, you can create order. That's a common claim. But let me use an analogy. Let's imagine you hear a lecture and someone says that. You go back home 
you find your house is a complete mess, your roommates or your children or whoever just totally messed up the place. There's, there's clothes everywhere, there's papers everywhere, the dishes aren't washed, and you think all I need is energy to create order. So you put gasoline on your couch, you set your couch on fire, and now you've got energy, and you, you stand back waiting for everything to come back. Will that work? No, no, that's going to create more of a mess. So you think that's not going to work, so what I need is a robot. I need a robot that can take energy and convert it into mechanical work, right? You plug your robot in, it gets charged up, it has a solar panel, it uses gas, whatever. Now you've got work. But now if you release that robot after you order it off Amazon into your house, will that help? Well, most likely not, because it could create a lot of problems. <laughs> so what does the robot need for you to order your house? Instructions, program. So what happens is you've got to give it information or programming so the robot knows what to do to order your house. Now, when you look at the origin of life, it's the same thing. Because life has incredible machinery that acts like engines, which converts one form of energy into another form of energy that's useful for the cell. And I want to introduce you to one which is called ATP synthase. So we can play the video. It's been called one of the wonders of the molecular world, an amazing nanoscale machine. ATP synthase is a high-tech micromolecular power generator inside the cells of your body. It generates adenosine triphosphate, or ATP, an energy molecule that provides fuel that every one of your cells needs to function. Without this fuel, your cells will cease operation, and so will you. ATP synthase works like a rotary engine. The barrel-shaped rotator is composed of 10 to 15 protein parts called subunits. The rotator spins around, transmitting mechanical energy into the drive shaft of the machine, which helps make ATP. This drive shaft has a specially placed bump that opens and closes parts as the drive shaft spins around. This bump opens special protein subunits on the bottom of the machine. When the bottom subunits open, a spent energy molecule called adenosine diphosphate, or ADP, enters the machine. The mechanical motion causes the ADP to bind with an additional phosphate group, creating the ATP energy molecule. And the ATP drifts off into the cell, ready to power some biomechanical reaction. The ATP synthase machine has many parts we recognize from human-designed technology. A rotor, a stator, a drive shaft, and other basic components of a rotary engine. The ATP synthase is one of thousands of elegantly designed molecular machines inside your cells that make your life and all known life possible. So that's basically the machinery inside the cell that gives you energy. There are trillions of these inside your body producing energy for you right now. Without those machines, you'd, you'd break down into simple chemicals. But that's not enough, because is having machinery to produce energy enough? What else do you need to create order? What did you have to give your, your, uh, your robot? 
information instructions. So inside of uh, every cell, you have DNA, which contains the instructions for life. It's like a four-digit code. It's not like ones and zeros if you're a computer programmer, or it's not like ASCII codes, which is dots and dashes, but it's A, C, T, and G. It's four letters. It's a digital code. This digital code acts like a computer program. In fact, Bill Gates, you may have heard of him. He's, he's a computer guy. He said, human DNA is like a computer program, but far, far more advanced than any we've ever created. So the origin of life requires information. Information is not a product of life. The digital code is essential for life. And why is that significant? Well, I don't know, do you ever have like alphabet soup growing up? Remember, you've had alphabet soup, right? Okay, good. And now when you grow up and you have this alphabet soup, you want to stir the soup. And what do you hope to see in your soup? A word, right? Now, if your name is Bob and you see your name Bob, it's like a sign from God, right? <laughs> Not necessarily, because Bob is a very small amount of information. Now, if your, your name is Jehoshaphat Jinglemeyer Schmidt <laughs> and you see your name, that is either a sign from God or you're from your parents. Now, if you see a, a message like this, you'll have success in business. You're not going to think to yourself, what an amazing coincidence. Just, I just got lucky. Would you ever believe that? Or would you say to yourself, if I just understood organic chemistry, if I knew the chemistry of the pasta or the physics of the water, I could understand that information. Does that make sense? Information is only a product of mind. So when you look at cells, you look at the simplest possible cell, you see information in addition to machinery that points to a creator as clearly as the message in the soup. So there's a signature in the cell in the soup that points to, to a creator. Now, of course, the last issue is the issue of evolution. Because people might say, hey, maybe if we have life, maybe it could evolve by chance. Now, what's interesting about that is the history. Because when you study Charles Darwin, what took place is he was deeply influenced by materialist philosophers of his day. So in many ways, evolution was an inevitable product of the fact that culture was turning away from a creator because blind chance is always a substitute for a creator. In fact, there was, um, there was a, a, a professor named Francisco Yala, and he said, it was Darwin's greatest accomplishment to show that the direct organization of living beings can be explained as a result of a natural process, natural selection without any need to resort to a creator or other external agent. Now, there have been people that talked about evolution which was directed or guided. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about evolution as you read about it in your textbooks, very much a non-teleological view of evolution, non-design oriented. What's happened is because that essentially functioned as the creation mythology of Western civilization, there's been enormous pressure on Christians just to kind of accept it blindly. It's, a, it's an invitation to a cultural captivity where you suppress your critical thinking and embrace the creation narrative without even thinking about it. In fact, this is a good example there was actually a book written by, oh, let me, you, you, we talked about Richard Dawkins, uh, Kenneth Miller called Finding Darwin's God. And he says, as Christians, we need just to accept these ideas because that way we'll be accepted by the culture. But what happens? It's a really interesting picture of how this very undirected view of evolution shapes theology. Here's what Kenneth Miller said. He says he agrees with the view that mankind's appearance on this planet was not preordained that we are here not as a product of an inevitable procession of evolutionary successes, but as an afterthought 
a minor detail, a happenstance in a history that might just as well have left us out. Now, you may not have studied as much theology as, as your pastor, but reading that, I kind of feel like that's a little bit in conflict with the idea that we're fearfully and wonderfully made. But that's just me. I'm a physicist. You can talk about with your pastor about that afterwards. Now, the question, though, what's the science say? What is, is it true? Is it false? Well, I actually went to a conference uh, last, uh, it was like a year ago in November, and it was the Royal Society of London, which is one of the top scientific institutions in the world. And they had a, a conference basically talking about the state of evolutionary theory. It was basically new trends in evolutionary theory. And the first speaker was a man, I won't mention his name on the tape in case it's being taped, I don't want him to get hate mail. But the first speaker actually said that when you look at evolutionary theory, the standard model you see, it can only explain very small changes, like the uh, natural selection of dogs, like finch beaks. It cannot explain the innovation of new body plans, new structures, major innovations. So, so evolution can explain how a finch grew a thicker beak. It can't explain how an amphibian became a reptile, at least the standard model. So the whole conference was about what are we going to do about this? And what happened is they presented several ideas, but none of the ideas actually had any empirical support for being able to create large-scale changes. So the state of the theory is intellectually bankrupt, essentially. Because what happens, if you look at the idea, is the top of the peak represents something like a species that we have today, like dogs. If you look at the other peak, that's like something very different, like going from an amphibian to a reptile. All of evolution works at the very top of the peak. That's where all the genetic variety is. That's where all the mutations are. Any mutation that would take you from one peak to another is, without exception, harmful. All mutations which affect body plans, structures, architecture are always harmful if they're expressed. So we know natural selection is very, very limited. That's sort of the state of the science. But beyond that, what happens is if you look at the fossil record, there's something called the Cambrian Explosion. What you don't see in the fossil record is a gradual transformation of one species into something radically different. It looks more like this. What happens is you have, um, and the uh, x-axis represents the different body plans or animals that you know of. Like one line could be a coral, one line could be an echinoderm, one line could be a vertebrate. So those are all major different groupings of nature. What you find in nature is that you have cells that go really, really far back, but there's a period in time where the first representatives of the major animals that we know today appear suddenly without ancestors going back to a tree of life. So what you see is pictures in the fossil record of radical new things appear suddenly, then they don't change with time. Now what happens is people talk about transitional fossils, they talk about um, intermediates, but there's a problem that people see the evidence through a false lens. Because what they always try to do is they try to fit everything into a tree-like structure like this. We have mammals in the different groups. But the structure looks more like, um, more like this. Oops, sorry about that. Oops, let's, can we go back one? Yeah, go back one. There we go. So what happens is it looks much, any, any computer pro programmers in here? Okay, this is not the right crowd. 
I'm sorry, I'm used to Seattle, where there'd be like half the... The point is, if you're an engineer or you're a computer programmer, you often use the same structures multiple times, right? Like a car, a motorcycle, and a boat will all have an engine, they'll all have a spark plug. So you do see kind of a hierarchy of structures, but you notice how you can also, an engineer can take different structures in different ways. Like you might put a radio in your car, but a radio won't be in your, your boat, but it might be on a motorcycle, get the idea? So engineers can take different structures and put them in different arrangements, but that doesn't fit consistently with an evolutionary tree. And one of our researchers actually did a mathematical model and looked at the similarities in nature. What he found is the pattern of similarities in nature do not fit an evolutionary tree, but more like an engineering dependency graph. So the similarities are not consistent with evolution, but they are consistent with design. Like humans and octopi have eyes for seeing, but that's not because we have a common ancestor. So when you look at nature in the overall pattern and in the microbiology, you see evidence of design. Now, what happens, and this is a challenge, is if you read a lot of secular scientists, they have quotes like this. This is Richard Levantin, who talks about how science has to be materialistic. He says, it is not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the world, but on the contrary, that we are forced by our a priori adherence to material causes to create an apparatus of investigation and a set of concepts that produce material explanations no matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated. Moreover, that materialism is absolute, so we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. In other words, what happens is scientists are saying, we have a lot of theories that don't really make sense. There's lots of conflicts, but we will accept a material view of the world. We will deny a creator regardless of the evidence. That's the picture you see in science. So a lot of what we try to do in my institute is point to people and ask them, follow the facts where they lead, not where your biases want them to lead. But why does it matter? So you can, all you people that don't like science, you can tune back in, we're gonna get back into theology. Why does it matter? It matters because if you're created by a designer, you have a purpose. And if you don't know your purpose, you injure yourself. Like if you've got a wristwatch and you don't know it's a watch, you might try to use it to hammer a nail or to stir your coffee. But you diminish the role of the wristwatch if you do that. In the same way, if you don't know your creator and your purpose and how you're meant to live, you will hurt yourself and diminish your life. Secondly, there's a, such a thing as morality. Because if we're created, we've got design parameters, so there is such a thing as good and evil, right and wrong. And if there is a creator, what that means is we have inherent value and dignity. Isn't that the challenge that people have today is they want to know their identity, they want to know their purpose, they want to know that they're valued? If you're created by God, you have inherent value and worth. If you're a product of the forces of nature, you have no more value than a, than a pile of sand. So the issue of being designed by God has enormous implications which will direct the destiny of your life. Thank you. so much. That's just incredibly helpful. I, uh, I keep thinking of Romans 1, that we suppress the truth because we want to be wicked. And uh, I don't know about you, but sometimes the, uh, 
when I want to do something that I know goes against who God has made me to be, I get incredibly sophisticated in my language. Uh, it's because I'm trying to create an excuse. But there's actually a beautiful uh, simplicity in responding to the Creator and submitting to His authority and design for my life. And I want to pray for us that we would have the humility to submit to the authority of God and that we wouldn't get clever and complicated and miss the obvious. Father, I thank you that you are a Creator. You're not a figment of our imagination. You're not something that we need in order to ease our conscience or give us hope after life. You're real. <clears throat> and it's actually our pride that is unreal, uh, unsupported, unsubstantiated, and deceptive. And I pray as a community that you would give us the grace to believe what is true, and it begins with you and what you say. And so I ask that through this time together, that you would humble our hearts, that you would silence our pride, and that you would give us the ability to be responsive to you, no longer suppressing you, but responding to you with great joy and delight. Because not only did you create us, you're in control and you have a future for us. Father, in response to what we've heard, we want to worship you. So please receive that worship now.